Welcome to Teach 'em Up, the podcast about teaching and learning. Today, we are talking with Virginia Vogel, chemistry, physics, and engineering teacher at San Marin High School. VA, how you doing? Pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Good. <laughs> um, we are back at it again. Last time, we talked about project-based learning. Mm-hmm. And today, we are going to be talking a little bit about assessment, um, and specifically about assessing what matters or assessing what you believe in, because it's really difficult to assess what matters until you determine what actually matters, and I believe that should be based on your belief system. So um, this is kind of a tricky piece, and I wanted to start by just kind of talking about our kind of like growth as teachers and kind of where we started as teachers and where we've kind of come to regarding like what goes in the grade book. So when you started teaching, what did your grade book look like? Well, I would say when I started teaching, I was a very like traditional teacher in that my grade book reflected the things that students were doing in class, but more about, I don't know, this idea of like point collecting. Yep. So like we would take notes in class. Mm-hmm. Students got points for that. Yeah. We would um, do a lab and a lab write-up and students would get points for that or answered um uh, discussion questions. And I'm assuming they got points for both components, right? They got points for doing the lab, and then they got more points for answering questions at the end. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, then uh, we would do practice problems. A lot of the practice problems were from the textbook. A lot of the reading that we did was from the textbook. The outlining was from the textbook. Um And then we would do a study guide. We would have a test. Um, And it was all sort of just assessing, like, did they do it? Hopefully, we were getting to the point where it was, did they do it correct? Or can Mm -hmm. we make those corrections before they get to the final assessment? Um, Kind of going a little bit further, assessments or tests and quizzes looked very textbook in that they were multiple choice. Sometimes they were free response. Um, it was kind of whatever whatever was easiest to be able to grade yep. because, again, I was like a new uh, teacher, and that traditional model was something that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. So I just figured that's what I saw, and so that's sort of what I did. And I think that's kind of like the model that most teachers use is what we were used to as students. Yeah. That's what we assume a grade book is supposed to look like. So when I started teaching, my grade book uh, in a 80 or a 90-day semester I probably had 80 to 100 assignments in my grade book. Yeah, same. Um, Like (laughs) nightly homework, and I would grade that, and then a classwork assignment, and I'd grade that, and then there'd be a test every week or two, and I'd grade that. Um, But a lot of it, because there were 90 assignments, I wasn't really assessing anything Mm -hmm. other than completion. Yeah, I was doing it, and you get points for it. Did you do it? And then I had 150 students. There's no way I can read 150 pieces of work in depth every single night mm-hmm. and still have something valid out of it. Yeah. So it was mostly completion. Yes. Um, yeah. I did know when I started teaching that I didn't want, you know, most of the grade to be based on homework because I remember when I was student teaching, I had situations where kids clearly could do the work, but they didn't do any homework. Mm-hmm. And so then the question is, what's the appropriate grade for that kid? Should they fail a class because they chose not to do any homework, but they learned everything? Mm-hmm. And I got to the point of like, no, they shouldn't fail the class. They should have like a C. Um, So I made sure that like homework was 15 or 20% of the grade and classwork was 40% and then tests were 35, 40, 50%, something like that. So I had a break between like classwork, homework, uh, tests. But beyond that, I still had tons and tons and tons of assignments. 
And mostly what I was assessing was compliance. Mm -hmm. Did you do what I asked you to do? And completion. Yeah. Did you do it on time? Did you do it on time? Did you do it? Did you do it? It's interesting, too, because um, even just looking at the homeworks that I used to give, Mm -hmm. which were section reviews from the chapters, um, which I think are great questions because they lead you to the important topics. But in 10 questions that students would have to answer, the last maybe one or two were always the more thought-provoking questions Mm -hmm. um, that really made you have to think (laughs) about what you just sort of read and analyzed. I I already know where you're going on this one. And those were always the questions that students would leave blank. Yep. And it's funny because it's almost like if you value just doing it, they're going to do the easy questions Uh and not think at all about the hard questions and just skip them. And, you know, they would get 90% of... Yeah, because they answered nine out of the 10 questions. (laughs) Right, The only one they didn't answer (laughs) was the one that requires deep thought. Yes, yeah. Um, So that's kind of where we started. Uh Um, And for that, I want to kind of apologize to the students that I had in my first five years (laughs) teaching. Um, But I think I was a decent teacher at that point. Uh I just didn't assess what I really valued. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you test for completion and for compliance, that's what you're going to get. Because one of my beliefs about people is that people respond to incentives. Mm -hmm. They don't purely respond to incentives, and sometimes the incentives that they respond to aren't really clear to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, people don't respond like purely to economic incentives. Like social acceptance is really important. And Mm -hmm. so that might be an incentive that they respond to. Mm -hmm. Or students aren't going to respond exclusively to grades. They also care about being funny or being Uh well-liked or being seen as whatever. And sometimes we don't even know what incentives we're responding to. But I do think people generally respond to incentives. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, one of the incentives that teachers have at their disposal is their gradebook and what they choose to assess. And it also helps the teacher figure out, what am I actually trying to teach? What do I want my emphasis to be? So we've made some shifts around what we actually assess and what we care about. Um, Do you want to kind of talk through the process through which you made a shift? Uh, Well, I would say my biggest shift would be when I started teaching STEM chemistry. Mm -hmm. And I remember the summer before I taught the class, um, I spent a lot of time redoing curriculum and making it project-based and making sure that everything that I did started with a driving question, had an end result. There was some sort of design factor that the students were making or building or doing a lab and analyzing. Um, But it was sort of... all of the content was built into projects. Mm -hmm. Um, In that year, I was actually teaching STEM chemistry for two sections and regular chemistry for the other three sections. And I remember coming to you specifically and saying, like, what exactly do I do? You know, because I've always taught this sort of traditional method for chemistry. um, And I know that the STEM program has a big focus on project-based learning and all these other skills that we develop students with. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of like this... If that is the better model uh, research-wise for how students learn by actually doing and interacting and engaging in the material, why then would I do different for my regular chemistry students? Right. Why would standard (laughs) chemistry use methodology that we don't believe works as well? Yes. And uh, I remember you just sort of saying to me, then don't use it, you know? And it was kind of this profound, like... um, you know, you almost sort of gave me the 
um, like go ahead to make sure that I did that with all of my classes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I necessarily needed that, but I feel like that was sort of a breaking point for me to understand that I'm at the level of a teacher to really assess what I want from students. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to go with a traditional textbook method because I think there's a better method for understanding what students know. And, you know, from that point, it was sort of a rolling ball in that direction. Mm -hmm. It's weird that you need permission from somebody else Mm -hmm. to make that shift that you know is right, because I needed it too. Yeah. Um, The way that I made the shift is as we started designing the STEM Marin program, we took a year, a year and a half before we rolled out a class to really think through, like, what do we want this to look like? And as part of what we want this to look like, what are our core beliefs around what students should be able to do? And as we thought through that process, and I was basically given permission by our principal at the time, Adam Littlefield, who was helping design the, well, not helping, he was designing the program. Um, you know, he was initiating everything and then giving me the permission to make a lot of the decisions. And through that process, we kind of sat down and talked through like what is really valuable after school. And if those are the skills that are valuable after school, maybe those are the skills that we should also help students develop in school. Absolutely. And through that process, we kind of winnowed down to six core things that we really wanted to focus on teaching students. And those six things were collaboration, working with other people, communication, how you express your ideas in writing and in speaking and uh, in multimedia, Um, critical thinking, so solving problems in different ways, creativity, and in creativity, we weren't just talking about like making nice pictures, but thinking ideas through in different ways, kind of thinking outside the box, coming up with novel solutions. Um, Then we had work ethic, are you working hard and trying your best? And then finally, content. As a STEM program, we wanted to make sure we actually taught some science and some engineering and some math and used some technological tools. Mm-hmm. So those were kind of our big six, collaboration, communication, critical thinking, creativity, work ethic, and content. And then once we decided on those big six, it kind of became obvious that like, oh, that's what I should be assessing. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I care about. I should make sure that I actually ensure that the work that students are doing demonstrates those six things. Mm -hmm. And once I'd made that choice, all of a sudden, it was harder. It Mm -hmm. took me like a year, year and a half to figure out how. Like, how do I take a student work product and then make it show critical thinking? Or how do I assess students in creativity? Right. That's really nebulous. And is it just me sitting on a stage going like, that was creative. That (laughs) was not creative. you know, how, how do I put that into a more objective way of determining? But once you figure out those are the things that you want to test, then all of a sudden school becomes a lot more fun because you're actually helping students gain the skills that you think are valuable. Right. I even just like going back a step, the fact that we both sort of needed permission from somebody else to make that happen, uh-huh. I think also speaks to we are allowing students to have that same permission. Mm. Because I think a big part of it was, you know, the unknown mm-hmm. and having the fear of like making mistakes yep. or not hitting all the content uh-huh. or, 
you know, not being able to prepare students for their standardized tests. Things, those are the things that as a teacher you're worried about. Uh-huh. But the more that I've grown as a teacher, what I have found is what I really value, just like you said, is developing young adults to be productive members of society when they move on from our school. Oh, what a crazy idea. <laughs> you know, like that. And that's really, I think, why I went into teaching, why I went into coaching, sort of why I like to participate in the um, other sort of supports that we have on campus. Um, leadership, when I used to teach leadership, um, coaching, mm-hmm. I said, link crew in the past. Um, and it's really sort of developing students and letting them giving them the opportunity to say, hey, it's okay if you make mistakes. We're going to learn through this and we're going to get through this together. Yeah. And so. And that's a huge piece of it Mm -hmm. is when you make that shift and all of a sudden students are being held accountable for how they collaborate and how they work with other people, that's a risky proposition for Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And so if they're going to be able to take those steps, you have to make sure that it's a safe situation for them to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Because students, uh, for better or for worse, have been well-trained in compliance, turn in the assignment, get the points. Right. And when you're playing the points game, it's tough to all of a sudden shift to a different kind of game. Yeah, absolutely. Where like, wait, 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 I know how to take a test. Uh-huh. Like I know I, I play the points game uh-huh. and then I take the test and I do what I'm supposed to do for the test and now you want more from me? Uh-huh. Like you, you aren't caring as much about the points game and now you're caring about what I can actually do? Mm-hmm. Like you're paying attention to my class, my work, my work ethic in class, and to how I explained things and communicated things, and to the problem-solving process that I went through. Like that doesn't feel fair, right? <laughs> That's not the game that I was learning how to play. And I think it's one of those things, like even small assignments, when teachers do things like give students the answers ahead of time. Mm-hmm. It's very clear. Well, maybe it's not very clear. Sometimes we have to say to them. It's not the answer that we care about. It's the process of finding that answer. Uh And it's knowing that you know how to find your way to that answer Mm -hmm. Um, and what makes sense, you know, because sometimes students will just bang it out and do what you want them to do, but they're not really understanding that you want them to figure out the process. The process is the important piece. Right. And the other nice piece is that it kind of takes away the incentive to just copy work. Right. Um, which is another piece that was driving me insane, mm-hmm. was that it felt like I was putting all this effort into learning and thinking and emphasizing that. And then the work that I was getting was just poorly copied. Um, because when you make it compliance and completion based, yeah, then like, all right, I could get the answer out of the textbook or I could look it up on Google or mm-hmm. I could just copy it from my neighbor. Like, yeah. what's the difference? Right. And right. to be fair, legit, what's the difference? Uh-huh. <laughs> Those are pretty much the same thing. In all cases, you're reading something and then writing it down. Yes. And we have this like weird, well, not super weird, but this like moral quandary around like copying from a neighbor is bad, but looking it up online is good. Uh-huh. Or in some teacher's case, looking it up online is bad, but looking it up in a textbook is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're now at the point where we're like, look, uh, doesn't matter. Here, have the answer. This is the answer. Now, show me how you can logically process to get to that answer. And I'm not going to give you the answer until you try it once or twice. Mm -hmm. But eventually, like, here's the answer. It's just sitting there on the board. Mm -hmm. You come up and grab it when you want it. Yeah. Um, Okay. So with that kind of justification background piece in mind, um, let's go through the things that we say that we care about and talk about how we actually assess those. Okay. Um, and it's a tough, tough piece to kind of navigate around, do we call this assess what matters, or assess what you care about, or assess what you believe in? 
but all of it is true. <laughs> okay, so um, thing by thing, uh, let's start with content because I think that's the one that is the easiest to access, mm -hmm. or at least for you and I. You and I were both trained up as teachers during the No Child Left Behind era, mm -hmm. where content was king. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the standards were students will know blank. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was all fact-oriented, what do students know? Um, now that What system, can students memorize? Right, what can way. students <laughs> memorize? Um, that system has shifted a little bit, because now all of those facts are easily accessible on your phone or the internet. Mm -hmm. And so memorizing stuff, I mean, is great for trivia, but less valuable on a long-term basis. I will say I am still a proponent of memorizing some things. Mm -hmm. um, math facts, for example, I think multiplication, you should just have down. Adding facts, you should just have down. Um, but a lot of it is like, can you mentally process through some stuff? Mm -hmm. Some things you just need to memorize. There are some sight words that you learn in elementary school where it's like if you just can't look at the word what and say what, <laughs> you're not going to be able to read very well. Yeah. But at the high school <laughs> level, um, what do we talk about when we talk about content? What are we really valuing and how do we assess that? Um, well, again, like you said, um, we've sort of had a shift. It's not what students will know, but mm -hmm. it's more what students will be able to do. Yes. So um, we try to focus students on an I can statement, uh -huh. um, which is still followed by the technical stuff, the content. Um, I can identify patterns in the periodic trends. Like that's still definitely a content piece, mm -hmm. but it's being able to sort of hone into the patterns and um, not memorizing stuff from the periodic table, but more understanding what's going on in the periodic table. It's more of like a skill component. Yes, yeah. In assessing, can you do that skill? The other really great piece that I like about that is it puts it more in the mind frame of, can you do it? And if you can't do it, it's almost like you can't do it yet. Mm -hmm. um, there's still that idea that you will be able to with more practice or with help yep. or supports. The students will know seems so indefinite. Like you either know it or you don't know it. <laughs> right. And if you don't know it, look it up and now you know it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the one hand, that's way easier as a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, when it was just students will know, I just had like a laundry list of things and I made sure that I told them to students. Uh -huh. And then I did my piece. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Now students, just make sure you remember them. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I think also with the content goes important pieces of um, understanding like how to analyze data mm -hmm. and how to collect quality data or back, back step, how to collect data in the first place. Right. What do you do with it? Uh -huh. Do you write a paragraph explaining all the information that you got and all the numbers and all the units? Uh -huh. Or can you put it into a data table that's easy to read and things like that? Yeah. So to me, it's not just the specific things, but it's also the, also the skills that we're helping students develop uh -huh. when it comes to the content. And then helping them even make the choice about you've gathered some data how do you want to present it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe a paragraph is a good way to present it. Or maybe a paragraph is not necessary in this case. Just give me some bullet points <laughs> or put it in a table or graph it. You know, that becomes the scientist's choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which one is more relevant for the data that you are collecting? Mm -hmm. Okay. So content-wise, um, I have like six big things that I try to make sure that I am emphasizing. And so anytime we have an assessment on content, 
I'm hoping that I'm assessing one of these six things. <laughs> so the six things are, number one, uh, break down a word problem and solve it. <laughs> this one was probably better uh, assessed in like a test, um, and especially in physics. You know, you explain a problem, or you get a real life situation, and then figure out how do you solve that. <laughs> um, that would obviously involve some math, it would involve some reading, it would involve some equations. Um, but breaking down the word problem and solving, and that would probably be a pretty traditional test question. Tougher to do with a multiple choice test. It means that almost all of my tests are now short answer, mm-hmm. um, or show your work. Uh, I guess not short answer, but you know, show your work. Yeah. Um, the downside there is that those problems are hard. Yeah. And well, that is a much huff- tougher mm-hmm. skill than just select the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also a more valuable skill. And that's like when I was talking earlier about the type of um, homework problems that students wouldn't answer. It's Uh those type of word problems that they really have to think about and break apart. And what do they know? What do they need to find out? What are they trying to get to find that answer? Right. And the nice part about that content objective, break down a word problem and solve it, is it applies no matter what the specific type of word problem is. So we can use it over and over and over again in physics when we're doing force then you're gonna do a lot of force equals mass times acceleration problems. If we're doing motion, uh, then maybe it's velocity is distance over time, or vertical velocity is acceleration due to gravity times time. Um, If we're doing potential and kinetic energy, you can solve for those. Um, If we're doing orbital motion, then we can pull an equation for that and determine orbital motion. Um, So, you know, waves, et cetera, like everything has different pieces that we can plug in. But more than the actual content piece, what I care about is can you do the process? Once you can do the process, the content should be really easy to to go one after the other. Yes. Um, And so as we structure our class, we put a lot of emphasis in the beginning on learning that process Mm -hmm. um, and doing it in specific ways, um, ensuring that as students break down a problem, they are required to indicate like what is needed out of this problem, what's the question asking for, mm-hmm. and what's given in the problem. Mm-hmm. So a needs and givens list with numbers and units. Once they've got needs and givens, and they figured out what variables attach to each of those things, then they select an equation mm-hmm. that has the need and some of the givens, not necessarily all of them. Um, and then they can plug it in and solve it and come up to, cor- to a correct answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but kind of focused on process through that. Right. And I think that even just in the smallest scale, developing that process, um, I value a lot like problem solving skills in real life. Yeah. Like, can you solve problems when given these constraints? Mm -hmm. Or do you know how to sort of navigate yourself out of a problem with what you have? Right. Um, Because in real life, you may not get a whole lot of word problems, Uh (laughs) but you will face a lot of problems just looking at the world around you. Yes. And that's really what a word problem is. Somebody's phrased it into a few sentences, Mm -hmm. but you're trying to solve a problem in the real context. Right. All right. Thing number two. Um, Identify a problem and develop an experiment to test it. This one, I think, um, I've sort of had the most challenge with chemistry only Mm -hmm. because students don't naturally have 
like wonder about how chemicals react or work or things what? like that. So, um, so it's it's one of those ones that you sort of have to help students develop. And you know, a lot of what I've done lab wise is get away from the cookbook type of, type of lab. Mm-hmm. What I like to call where here's the recipe, follow the recipe, and do it, and you get an outcome. Um, but really helping students identify what they want to solve how they're going to develop an experiment to test that. So one of the things that we do in chemistry right now, we're doing a water project. And students sort of get to um, develop their own um, question uh, as to how they want to use chemicals to either clean water, um, to make it drinkable, or to treat wastewater so that it can go out in the environment or something like that. And to be able to do that, you know, they're faced with the problem of, okay, you have tap water Mm -hmm. from, you know, the school sink. What are you going to do with it? What right. are you going to test? What is it going to look like? And sometimes that requires them to do the research research, or the teachers helping do the research for them to sort of navigate where they should be. But um, it's really going back to that idea of, you know, developing or having a passion for asking questions uh-huh. and figuring out where you're going to find those answers. Right. And is that actually accessible? Mm-hmm. Um, I would argue that it is. Yeah. Um, you can go through and you can help students self-assess. And you can also do some assessing for students in terms of like, did you have the right variables? Mm -hmm. Did you have an independent variable? Did you have a dependent variable? Did you hold everything else as a control? Mm -hmm. Um, Were you able to test this? And does the data show what you're hoping that it's going to show? Yeah. Or not what you're hoping it's going to show, but what you think it's showing. And that's a big... um, sort of pushing students to make predictions ahead of time. Uh-huh. Like we used to do this traditional model of like, come up with a hypothesis. Yeah. And here is, you know, your, here is your problem question. Yeah. I've written it on the board for you. Write a hypothesis. Figure it out, you know. And students have no idea what to do because they're not, it's not anything that they've seen before, right. you know. And sometimes it's really foreign vocab that you're throwing at them and they're just sort of doing whatever but you know if you can make a prediction like well you know we know the ph of water drinking water Uh um if we add this chemical we predict that the ph should go down right and you know then does that actually happen what made you or led you to believe that the ph would decrease as Uh opposed to increase yeah you know and those are kind of the valuable skills that you're getting students to understand yeah Um, Okay, so thing number three builds off of thing number two, and this is still within content. Mm -hmm. Um, Identify data needs, gather data, and analyze the data with tables, graphs, and conclusions. Um, So I would argue that is just step two of our first thing. Mm -hmm. You've designed an experiment. Now you're analyzing the data for it. Although um, data analysis is valuable even if you don't run an experiment. Mm -hmm. Like we have so much data in the world now. I want to say that the deal is it like it doubles every year or two, Ooh. <laughs> uh, the like amount of information yeah. in the world. Like we are constantly gathering data mm-hmm. through electronic means and just like automatically. So then being able to parse through it and figure out what the heck does that data mean becomes really important. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think we can absolutely assess. Um, you can have students take a look at a data table or a set of data, figure out how to analyze it, graph it themselves, and then determine a trend and make a conclusion based on that trend. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can talk about correlation versus causation. Students can make determinations as to whether you're seeing a correlation or an actual causation. Mm -hmm. Um, You can talk about sample size, and there's a lot there that leads to some really rich, deep-thinking discussions. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's super important Mm -hmm. and something that absolutely is accessible. Right. 
It's one of the things that I wish, I mean, we do it in physics a lot, but in chemistry, I wish we did it more with um, just not like random stuff, but mm-hmm. stuff that's sort of off topic just mm-hmm. to also practice that skill yeah. to make sure that they're able to make those comparisons and, you know, is it cause and effect? Is there a relationship between the two of them, you know, and be able to sort of speak to that? Right. Um, okay. So that was thing number three. Um, thing number four within our content zone is using evidence to develop claims. Um, so there's a couple different ways that we kind of assess that. Do you want to talk to to those? Yeah. So one of the ways that we do it is through um, claim evidence and reasoning. Okay. Um, and what we have recently done, so in our um, physics class, we had students build a trebuchet. Yep. They designed the and trebuchet. Trebuchet is like a catapult. Like a catapult, right? yep. Yeah. Um, they tested it by launching clay balls yep. to see how efficient their design was. And they came up with a claim evidence and reasoning poster. Um, we They sort of could start in any category, but one of the ways that I sort of move through it is I look at the data first. Mm-hmm. And from the data, I sort of try to pin out trends or um, things that sort of stand out. The goal for this was to try to get the clay ball to throw, to um, launch the furthest. Mm-hmm. So you want to look at your sort of test to see how it was getting the furthest. So the evidence, the data that they're analyzing, yes. is the distance that the clay ball travels. Right. Horizontal distance traveled by the clay ball. Yes. Um, and they're testing that by modifying some variable on their trebuchet. Yes. They're modifying one thing and seeing what happens to the distance that the ball goes. Right. Okay, so and, that's their evidence, that's uh-huh. their data table, and that's where they're starting. Yes. Then um, I would move towards the reasoning. Yep. So if you can find the reason, and we're asking for scientific reasoning, uh-huh. using vocabulary terms, pushing them to really see what it what it is about the physics mm-hmm. that's getting that clay ball to launch the farthest. Got it. So the reasoning would be something like, as I added more rubber bands, the rubber bands as they stretch have more potential energy in them. And so that potential energy is then transferred to kinetic energy. The kinetic energy on the ball makes the ball go faster. And if the ball comes out faster, it will go farther. Right. Um, So they're using terms like potential energy, kinetic energy, velocity, distance, as their reasoning explaining the trend that they saw in the evidence that they gathered. Absolutely. And it's not just a, we did this and it made it better. You know, like they're really, and we're really pushing them to focus on, you know, what it is that's making that better. Right. (laughs) And and realistically, at the ninth grade level, their starting point Mm -hmm. is going to be more rubber bands. The ball went further. Yes. Yeah. And you're like, okay, good. Now let's think through why might that happen. Dig why deeper. would you expect more rubber bands to make it go further? Yeah. Well, they've got more snap in them. Uh-huh. More rubber bands means more snap. Great. Let's put that into physics terms. Uh-huh. Snap is based on potential energy or elastic potential, you know. And then the last part is um, the claim. Mm-hmm. And for the claim, the way that I sort of explain it is like, what is your going to be like, draw the line in the sand, the thing that you are claiming that is... Um, using the evidence and the reasoning in a very sort of specific sentence that says exactly what you're claiming your trebuchet or catapult is to do. Yeah, your one sentence big takeaway. Yes. What's your conclusion? What's your one sentence that proves your thing? Um, And that's tricky because as we speak, 
humans generally speak claim first, and then here's my evidence for it, and here's my reasoning about that evidence. Right. But as we think as scientists or as mathematicians or really as anything, mm -hmm. right, if you're making a social sciences claim or a claim in your English class, mm -hmm. hopefully you're thinking about the evidence first, mm -hmm. then thinking through the reasoning, and then making a claim based on that evidence and reasoning. As we explain it, we generally make the claim, show the evidence, and then explain the reasoning. Right. So there's kind of like a backwards flip-flop there, right. when you described how to put together the thought process, uh -huh. and then when you talk about the thought process, you kind of invert it and start with the claim piece. Right. Because you're starting with the, like, here's my statement, here's the evidence that backs it up, and then here's why, you know, why that evidence backs it up. Cool. To back so you can do that through a poster. Mm -hmm. um, another tool we use is called clear writing, um, and that's just a rephrasing of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a paragraph or essay format, and it's claim, lead-in, evidence, analysis, and then repeat the evidence and analysis piece. So same idea. Um, claim evidence reasoning is one phrasing. Claim lead-in evidence analysis. Repeat the evidence and analysis is another phrasing. We use clear for writing. We use claim evidence reasoning for like a poster or visual piece. Um, but it's the same skill in both cases. It's a way we can assess kids on were they able to use evidence to develop a claim. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So that takes us through four of our content objectives, the four big content pieces that we have out of six. Um, and this is specific to a science class. So uh, thing number five. Um, thing number five is kind of my favorite, but it's uh, develop a model of a situation using writing, pictures, and numbers. See, this is why you're a good chemistry <laughs> teacher, and I'm an awful chemistry teacher, because it is my least favorite. <laughs> really? I it didn't is. know that. Yep. So I think it's one of the most challenging ones, and I don't think I would have got it until I went to a professional teaching development um, workshop. And actually did it as a teacher uh -huh. as a student and kind of had this oh like that aha moment uh -huh. and I think it really required me to have that to be able to design and develop it f in chemistry yeah um so one of the things and I, I will argue it's a hard thing to do yeah um sometimes students miss what you're trying to get them to do. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is the word model uh -huh. is a little bit confusing. Yes. Because again, going back to our own experience as students, mm -hmm. I have an idea of what a model was when I was a student. Right. I made a model of an element. I took some marshmallows mm -hmm. and I put them together uh, in a nucleus. Mm -hmm. And then I had some pipe cleaners and I made the pipe cleaners go around my nucleus of marshmallows and I stuck some beads on there and those were electrons. I had a model of an atom. Yes. Uh, I, is that the kind of model that you're trying to make me make? No. Uh. <laughs> I would also say um, in high school, I made a model, and we actually still did this project when I first started teaching, um, but I made a, a cake model, an oh, edible model yep, yep. of I a love plant that edible cell. Model. Uh -huh. And I did that, um, you know, we I had different candies that represented the different components of the cell, uh, the plant cell. And, uh, you know, you had to explain it. Mm -hmm. And basically the explanation of it was these little toothpicks that I had stuck into it with the labels. Yeah. You know, and that is not a model. It's great. It's great. And, and, and I want to say, like, those things are not bad things to do. Right. Right. Making a uh, diagram, making a picture of a mm -hmm. thing is a cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's just not a fully developed scientific model. Right. And to, you, to have a fully developed scientific model, what you're really asking 
the model to be able to do is to explain a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So if you can use that model to explain a phenomenon, then um, you are, you know, the model is a process that you're using to help you understand how something works. And a phenomenon is something semi-unexpected in the natural world. Right. Right? Like something that we look at and we're like, whoa, that's weird. Mm -hmm. I wonder why that's happening. Yes. And like one of the things that I would say is it can be something, it's awesome if you can be able to manipulate it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it is just a picture. Sometimes it's an equation. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember we used to do um, in our science, we would figure out like um, the... Uh, moon phases. Yeah. The moon phases is, interestingly enough, a very difficult concept for um, people to like understand how so, it works. So difficult. And well, because we have such a strong idea of what it should be. <clears throat> right. And what we think it should be is the Earth casts a shadow on the moon. Right. The sun is over here. It shines. The Earth blocks some of the sun. And that's why we only see some of the moon. And I think that when you develop a model, one of the things that your model should be able to do is really make those predictions. Uh If your model can't stand up to those predictions, then either your model is incorrect and you need to change your model or you need to change your, you know, that hopefully helps you to change your thinking about what the process is actually happening. Yeah. Um, So the scientific model that you're talking about is like a robust system of thinking mm -hmm. that can explain something in the natural world. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so that doesn't have to be a picture, although a picture could be part of it. Right. It doesn't have to be a cake with candy parts. No. Although a cake (laughs) with candy parts could be part of it. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Um, It might have an equation associated with it. It might have some changing things associated with it. It's more of like an explanation. Right, right. right? A full, robust explanation that has some numerical, mathematical components that might have some pictures, drawings, motion associated with it, just some way of explaining what's happening. Right. I, when I think of a model, I think of it as like a thought process. Yes. And are you, is it, is the model helping you to understand what the, what's going on, what uh-huh. the scientific process is that's going on? Now, one thing that I always like to stress with my students is there's always limitations to models. Yes. You can have an awesome model, but there's always limitations to that model because sometimes the phenomenon is just unknown. Yeah. You know, our model of the atom and what we know so far of the atom has developed and grown so much. Uh-huh. But that's also because our technology grows and yeah. our understanding of what happen, happens grows. And you have to change your model. When yeah. you discover something that doesn't align with your model, then it's probably that you have to change your model. Right. So we had this idea <laughs> of like electrons, protons, neutrons, and then all of a sudden we banged some stuff together and noticed, oh my God, there's something smaller. Mm-hmm. And let's call it a weird word, like a quark. Yes. <laughs> um, and now all of a sudden we have to modify our model and say, okay, maybe it's not a proton. The proton's made up of a couple of these quarks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and going further with that model. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a vast simplification yeah. <laughs> of subatomic uh, physics, yes. uh, subatomic particles. Um, okay, so developing a model, I think that's one's really tough to assess. Uh-huh. But we have a um, pretty nice rubric that can help students self-assess and then help a teacher assess their modeling process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you give them a phenomenon, a scenario, they can run through the process with the rubric in front of them mm-hmm. so they know what's expected. Mm-hmm. And it has different components on it. So students can see, ah, through my model, I need to show that it's predictive. Um, I should be able to make a prediction based on it. Or it has to be able to incorporate words and diagrams and pictures and an equation. Right. Um, And so they can go through and say, does my model do these things? 
So we have a rubric. There's different categories that they have to demonstrate. Um, and that helps kind of figure out, is it a good scientific model and makes it an accessible piece. Right. Awesome. So that was our fifth of six uh, content pieces. And our sixth one is research for information and understand and restate the technical content you read. Um, this one, I think, is really vital for every subject area um, and for just being a conscious human being. Can you take information, which we have a tremendous amount of, mm -hmm. find valid good information, and then parse it down and figure out what the heck does it actually mean? Um, in science, we do that by kind of focusing on specific scientific journals or writing from scientific journals. Uh, so like some news organizations do a really good job of restating scientific findings, uh, and then that's a great source. But going through and kind of saying, okay, this is uh, research from the National Institute of Health, uh, that's a pretty valid source. <laughs> it's NIH.gov. Like, that seems like pretty valid, and it explains exactly what's happening. You can probably trust that. Or this one comes from greenhealthorganization.com, and there's all kinds of weird ads on here. <laughs> um, it looks like they might just be selling hemp. I don't know. Uh -huh. uh, and so... You know, that perhaps is less reliable. Right. Um, and so step one, figuring out which pieces are reliable or not reliable. Step two, being able to read through reasonably complex technical writing and figure out what's it actually saying. Um, and then be able to restate it and explain to somebody else, here's what I found through my research. Uh, again, this one is really literacy-based. Mm -hmm. Can you read, write, explain uh, using technical vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do have to teach some reading skills. You have to teach some comprehension skills. You have to teach some explaining skills. And you've got to teach some of the vocabulary stuff. Yeah, But it's way more um, in-depth than just, here's a list of vocabulary words. If you're studying homeostasis, you need to know positive feedback, negative feedback, hormone. Mm -hmm. um, like, yes, you do need to know those words. But you need to know them so that you can explain what's happening in this research piece that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just define the terms. You're using the terms while you do that research. And it's seeing those terms like in real context. Yeah. Can you still code switch when it's real talk? Yes. Um, which is what we're hoping for. Like we don't learn vocabulary terms just to know them. Yeah. <laughs> we learn them to use them in the context that they would be useful. Yeah. Like figuring out your own medical care or understanding what your doctor is telling you about your own medical care. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so those are our six big content pieces. Just to refresh, those were breaking down a word problem and solving it, identifying a problem and developing an experiment, identifying data, gathering data, and analyzing that data, using evidence to develop claims, developing a model of a situation, and then finally, researching for information and understanding and restating the technical information that you've read. Whew. Whew. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's quite a curriculum right there. Yeah. Um, and that is just the content. But that's component. not it. That's yeah. not it. That's not it. We got good news and we got bad news. Yeah. Um, the good and the bad news is that that is kind of like one sixth of what we actually focus on. Yeah. One fifth, maybe. Um, so the content is a big piece of it. Mm -hmm. And being able to do those things, but you also need a skill set to be able to take those content pieces and actually do with it what you want to be able to do with it. And that other four-fifths is what we're going to explore next time.
We are going to make this part one of three in our Assess What You Believe, Assess What Matters series. Uh, next week, we're going to come back and talk proficiency-based education with Carrie Beth McCall. And then for part three, we're going to come back with Virginia Vogel again and uh, talk more about those soft skills that are necessary for success and how we teach and assess those. So Virginia Vogel, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time.